0: Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday's sermon was given by Associate Pastor, Reverend Henry Coates. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpressevanston.org. scripture reading today is from the gospel according to John chapter 12 verses 12 through 19. I'd like to offer a prayer today. Father God, thank you. Thank you Lord for the spring and the flowers and all that it brings to us Lord. Um, Help us to be very aware of your goodness and how to love each other well and to learn from the scriptures today. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. John chapter 12 verse 12. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, good morning. It feels really good to say that. It is a great privilege to stand up here before you all to share a word from the Lord this day. And it is a great privilege not simply because it is the Lord's Day. It is not simply a great privilege because it is Palm Sunday. It is a great privilege because this is, as you are all well aware, the first time in over a year that we can gather together again in this space. So, for those of us who are here in person, all I can say is welcome. To those of us who are watching on the live stream, you are here with us as well. And together I say to you, welcome. I'm glad you're here. We are worshiping wherever we may be on this day, this morning, as the body of Christ and together whether you be at home whether you be uh, somewhere across the world wherever you may be today we are with Jesus entering the holy city of Jerusalem together our palms waving all the while that's right Annette our palms waving all the while if you got a palm you can wave it right now all right that's the interactive part of the sermon well done everybody we we're doing all right so we are told that the day after Jesus had been anointed in Bethany in the presence of Lazarus who he had raised from the dead The great crowd that was coming to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover heard that Jesus was on his way to the city, and they wanted to see him. Now, this isn't your typical crowd. This is a Passover crowd. There's a difference. Passover was and is the holiest of Jewish festivals and brought people from all over the world to the holy city for celebrations. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus, writing some 50 years after Jesus' death, claimed that typically there were and this is an exact number two million and 200 additional pilgrims in Jerusalem for Passover. Yes, Josephus was strangely specific about the additional number of pilgrims. 2,700,000 with an additional 200. Now Marilyn May Thompson notes in her brilliant commentary on the Gospel of John, that since Passover commemorates the deliverance of the people of Israel from Egypt, Jews remembered God freeing them from Egypt by protesting those who held them in bondage still. A collective remembering intensified by the sheer number of pilgrims in the city. Josephus tells a story of an event that happened about 30 years prior to what we are commemorating today, when Herod Archelaus, son of Herod the Great, who hunted Jesus as an infant, was king. Now, the Romans had placed some of their imperial eagles, symbols of Rome's great power, might, and authority, over the Jewish temple. Now, some Pharisees had secretly taken them down in the night, as these Roman eagles soaring high above the Jewish temple were an affront to God. And when the Pharisees were caught, the Romans had them killed. People began to protest, and troops were sent in to maintain order. Soldiers were killed, and a Roman tribune was wounded by an angry Jewish mob. The Romans responded in the way the Romans tended to respond to these sorts of things. They killed several thousand Jews. What were a couple thousand dead Jews to the Romans, after all? The Romans also canceled all temple sacrifices, including the preparation of lambs for the Passover feasts. You see, the lessons learned by the Romans was that the Passover was trouble and that they needed to put down any religious or nationalistic Jewish murmurs with extreme prejudice. The Jewish people always lived with a level of fear because of the Roman occupation. They also lived with a promise that just as God had saved their ancestors at the first Passover, maybe this year, maybe this year, God would make a way when there seemed to be no way. That God might bring about their freedom this year in Jerusalem. Do not fear. O oh, daughters of Zion, look, your king is coming. So Jesus showing up, riding on a donkey, seeming to fulfill this scripture in Zechariah, only added more heat to the fire that was Passover in Jerusalem. The great crowd advances in the swelter to meet Jesus with palm branches in their hand and the words of the psalmist on their lips, Hosanna, they cry, which in Hebrew means save us. It was liberating, dizzying, freeing. It is because of the Gospel of John that we called this Sunday Palm Sunday. Palms aren't mentioned in the other three Gospels. It's only in the Gospel of John that palms are mentioned. In ancient stories outside of the Bible, palms show up in events associated with the temple. In John, the crowds are carrying palm fronds, hailing Jesus as the King of Israel. The King is the one, after all, who will preserve the temple and who will free the people from the Romans. Now little do the crowds who hail Jesus as king know that their leaders, the Sandrahedron, who at this time owe their positions to Roman power, had already plotted a different way to protect the people, to ensure the safety of the temple. Better one man die than the whole nation to perish. After all, no one, not the crowd, nor did the disciples at the time, know what is coming. Jesus will not vanquish the Romans as a conquering king. No. He will be crucified as a common criminal and die on a Roman cross. The people are expecting one thing and they will get another. Now this isn't a triumphant entry into Jerusalem no nor is it exactly bittersweet it's more of a a fever dream whose significance can only be grasped in hindsight and at first it can seem like a disappointment a letdown because how does this end with, with Jesus dead but but that's not the end of the story We know that Palm Sunday isn't just some isolated event. We live after Palm Sunday, after all, after the crucifixion and the resurrection. Now, perhaps you know yourself as the redeemed, washed by the blood of the crucified Passover Lamb of God. You know, for us Christians, I believe there is a subtle challenge here And how John tells this story, one that I don't detect in the other Gospels. And I want to share this challenge with you today that I think is appropriate for our first Sunday back here in person. The challenge is this. The Gospel of John seems to be asking us, how will we remember and respond to Jesus as he enters Jerusalem? I keep coming back to verse 16. Verse 16 reads, His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written of him and had been done to him. Now, I think that's an odd verse. Why is it here? Why did John choose to remember Jesus entering this way? And why did the disciples admit to not understanding it at first? John and the other disciples clearly saw some significance to Jesus entering the way he did that they did not get at first. See, Jesus turns expectations upside down if you choose to dedicate your life to following him, it seems. It changes who you are. You might not get it at first, but at some point you will experience this freedom to understand, this freedom to become and understand things anew. When Jesus shows up, freedom is in his wake, the freedom to follow him. Now you can't passively follow Jesus, this is something I've learned in my life. Uh, The crowds that welcome him, they didn't passively greet him into the city, did they? They worked themselves into a frenzy, waving their palms. The promise of freedom tends to do that to people, am I right? We know from later in John's Gospel that this clearly spooked the Romans. It was Passover after all. They were extra sensitive to these sorts of things. But the Gospel of John takes us past this fevered entry, and God seems to be asking us a question from it today. When the king shows up and offers you your freedom, what are you going to do with it? If when Jesus enters the scene, he sets us free, And if, as Paul writes in Galatians 5.1, for freedom we were set free, what then? This is not a passive freedom, our freedom in Christ. It is an active, empowering, freeing gift that challenges us all, all of us, to act like Jesus would act. Let me phrase it this way, perhaps. Whose wounds are we binding up? Where are the broken hearts we are tending? Who are our neighbors we are loving? Our church's mission is to know Jesus Christ and to grow in him, making disciples here in Evanston, Chicagoland, and the world. This is what we have decided it means to follow him here at First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. Can it be hard? Well, yes. Is it awkward at times? Yes, it is. I know this personally. It is scary. Yes. But, But what does scripture tell us in light of all those things? Do not be afraid, daughters of Zion. Look, your king is coming. The freedom that Christ offers turns the world upside down and gives life, and gives life abundantly. When he enters the city and the crowds go wild, he implicitly invites them and us to follow him. But what he does not do for us or for anyone, is given opportunity to make excuses for the way we abuse our freedom. The freedom of a Christian does not mean that we can blame others for our sin, nor for our falling to temptation, nor for our giving into our sometimes murderous desires, as if being a Christian gives us a get-out-of-jail-free card. Now, I'm gonna talk about something very dark now. And I wanna give you a heads up, okay? I think it's important from the pulpit that you hear real talk. So I wanna just give you that heads up, okay? In the past two weeks, there have been two mass shootings in America. In Boulder, Colorado, and in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, I've been thinking about these a lot because I believe that those who perpetrated these heinous crimes are guilty of sin. We don't know much yet about the Boulder shooting, not yet, but we've learned about the Atlanta one. I'm not going to dignify the man with mention of his name, but two weeks ago, a young man went into three massage parlors in the Atlanta area, and killed. He murdered eight people, two men, and six women. The women, because these women to him represented his sexual sin that he kept on falling into, the men were what is called collateral damage. According to police, the shooter said he suffered from sex addiction and shot the women because they were a temptation for him that he wanted to eliminate. That's a direct quote. These women were not human in his eyes. They were temptation that had to be eliminated. Six of the eight people killed were Asian women. They were not simply women in his eyes. They were devils who had to be exterminated as the sin they were. What this young man believed were demonic lies. And he will stand before the judge of all things, the creator of heaven and earth, and answer for his sin. Of that I have no doubt. It is said that this man is a Christian, a cradle Christian, his father a, valid, a valued pillar of his congregation. He grew up in the church from childhood and gave his life to Jesus at a young age. His Instagram page reads, God and guns. He was the type who set up tables and put away chairs who went to Sunday school and memorized the 10 commandments. He knew his scriptures, his church was his life. He justified his misogynistic, racist murder spree on his theology, on his read of the Bible. He is one of us. And we, in particular we white Christians, must acknowledge, confront, own and collectively repent of his sins as if they were our own. Because as John Donne observed, no man is an island, entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main And so, just as we stand condemned and thus confess the sins of a broken world that embraces racism, diminishes the Asian-American experience, and hates women, we too mourn for those killed, the innocents murdered, who were just doing their job for poverty wages. Because we can't kid ourselves. Massage parlors don't pay. They had names, they had faces, they had lives, hopes, joys, dreams, and they did not deserve to die. And so we, on this Palm Sunday, as we look to our King and wave our palms crying, Hosanna, and what does Hosanna mean? Save us. We pause, and we say their names, because again, as John Dunn observed, any one's death diminishes me, because I am part of humankind. And therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Sun Chung Park, age 74. Sun Cha Kin, 69. Yong A Yu, 63. Huan Jiong Grant, 51. Paul Andre Michaels, 54. Xiao Jie Tan, 49. Dao Yo Fong, 44. Delania Ashley Yao, 33. May their memories be eternal as they rest in peace and rise in glory. Do not be afraid, daughters of Zion. Look, your king is coming. The freedom for which we are set free in Christ is the freedom to welcome Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem, to follow him to the cross itself And to worship him as he wins the war against sin and death on our behalf. On the behalf of all innocents everywhere. It is the freedom to enter into the trenches of the great battle with the powers and the principalities of darkness. With the devil himself confident of our victory in Jesus. As J. Lewis Martin, a biblical scholar who has had strong influence on the way I think about these things, once noted, in the crucifixion, God meets on the battlefield, not the Jews, not the Sandrahedron, not even the Romans, but rather Satan and his hosts who act in and through and on human beings. And in our world today, as in the world of yesterday, the power of Satan, of evil, seems to be dominant and in control. Pain, suffering, people purposely hurting one another. It is everywhere you look, the devil acts in and through and on. This is the power of of hell. J. Lewis Martin told this story of Swiss theologian Emil Bruner, who was lecturing at Wellesley College soon after the Second World War, soon after the horrors of the Holocaust were becoming known. In the course of one of his lectures, Bruner referred several times to the devil. In the question and answer period of his lecture, a student asked why Bruner, being a modern human being, should have mentioned the devil. We live in a scientific age, after all. The devil is just a fanciful myth to help explain the problem of evil. Bruner's response, I have referred to the devil for two reasons. First... I find he plays an important role in Scripture. And second, I have seen him. If you have eyes, you have seen the devil and his power. We saw the devil in Atlanta. We saw him in Boulder. We see him in the dust and smoke of the World Trade Center at Sandy Hook Elementary School, in Oklahoma City, at Selma, at Tuskegee, over Hiroshima, at Wounded Knee, at Fort Sumter, along the Trail of Tears and amongst the cotton plantations, and amid the colonial British slave routes known as the Triangle Trade. The list goes on and on and on, in and through and on, humans, the devil acts, the power of hell flexes its domain. But this is just the battle. Individual battles are sometimes won and sometimes lost. Whoever forgets this invites repeated experiences of disillusionment. But as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, not as a conquering king on a war horse, but as the Messiah who turns the world upside down riding a donkey, we can say that God's apocalyptic war of liberation has begun. That's why John included this passage in his gospel. That's why we celebrate Palm Sunday even today. To echo my favorite preacher, Gardner Taylor, today the battle shout, tomorrow the victors cry. Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming. As Martin observes, look, God has placed us in his struggle for redemption, the ultimate outcome of which is not in question by the awful invading power of God's unconditional grace. Without a single if, God has placed us in the front trenches of his apocalyptic war of redemption. So that in the power of his unconditional grace, we may fight the only good fight in the world. The fight of the God who is the passionate advocate of every one of us. As Jesus enters Jerusalem and enters his final week, which we commemorate this holy week. He calls to us. Follow me, onward, onward, friends, to the cross. Follow me, he says, I am your king, but you will only see me as such when I am lifted up and glorified, when my skin is pierced and my blood poured out, when I die and when I am buried. And on the third day, no power of hell, no scheme of man shall ever pluck you from my hand. Follow me. The serpent that hurts and destroys will be killed, and all that is broken be healed. For I have called you, called you by name. Your labor is not in vain. Do not be afraid, daughters of Zion. Look, your king is coming, as it was in the beginning, is now, and forever shall be. World without end Hosanna 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 Amen and Amen